focus on headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, joining us in the studio today, we have our reporters in Yoon Jung and Chung Yein. Guys, welcome back. Good evening. Good evening to you guys. Today on Tuesday, a cabinet meeting was held. Uh, this over at the Yongsan Presidential Office where South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol <laughs> urged the National Assembly to revise the Labor Standards Act while expressing high hopes, of course, for Busan to host the 2030 World Expo. Hejung, start us off with President Yoon's remark. Uh, what do you say today? Right. At today's cabinet meeting, President Yoon Suk-yeol requested that the National Assembly quickly pass a revision to the Labor Standards Act to punish employers who habitually fail to pay their employees on time. Time. Measures such as excluding them from government assistance projects and giving them disadvantages in public bids and financial transactions were brought up. President Yoon said such delayed payments threaten the lives of workers and their families, and especially young people who are just starting their careers, leaving some of them with bad credit ratings. The South Korean leader added that the Korean law handles overdue wages as a criminal offense and that the principle of the rule of law in labor and management affairs should be applied fairly to both workers and employers. President Yoon also addressed recent disruptions in the government's online civil service networks, saying the matter calls for a proper investigation into the root cause, which may include chronic mismanagement by splitting contracts and frequently changing management companies or cyber attacks from outside. Now, moving on to the topic of his recent overseas trips, President Yoon said he highlighted South Korea's commitment to leading action on climate change during the APEC summit in San Francisco, while upgrading bilateral ties to a global strategic partnership during his state state visit to Britain and meeting with diplomats in Paris to deliver a final push to bring the 2030 World Expo to Busan. And with the vote to select the hosting city just hours away, President Yoon said the government's all-out campaign to bring the 2030 World Expo to Busan was aimed at bringing balanced development and rapid growth to the country. He stressed that he had held more than 150 meetings with state leaders as part of the campaign to host the expo and that one team Korea comprised of government, businesses and citizens will sprint to the finish line. President Yoon claimed the world was deeply impressed by South Korea's potential after witnessing how the country's public and private sectors came together to campaign for the event, expressing high hopes to become the host. And of course, finally, after all the months of us talking about the hosting rights, the 2030 World Expo, it is finally D-Day uh, mm-hmm. with the General Assembly of the Bureau International de Expositions uh, scheduled to take place this on Tuesday local time over in the French capital of Paris. Uh, the world giving much attention to the voting process, not to mention the results as well. Uh, there's going to be anonymous uh, electronic voting that's going to be conducted through 182 members. Uh, There is a final 20-minute presentation slated for the three uh, host candidates uh, before the voting begins. Yane, 
Things are getting very interesting now, uh, down to the last wire now. Uh, tight race all the way till the end. Uh, give us more on the, uh, the voting that's going to take place later today. Sure. So the Korean government and the city of Busan reported uh, that the General Assembly of the Borough International Desk Expositions, or BIE in short, is set to commence at 9 a.m. local time in downtown Paris. So in the morning session of this General Assembly, the BIE members will first address its own international agenda and the proceedings related to the 2030 World Expo host city selection will kick off with the fifth round of presentation uh, presentations I mean as early as 1:30 p.m. so the fifth round of pitch will unfold with presentations from the competing cities starting with Busan from Republic of Korea of course and uh, then it will be followed by Rome Italy and Riyadh Saudi Arabia each given a 20-minute time slot so Korea is approach this time in the final presentation is said to be about emphasizing the vision that the Busan Expo will become a platform of solidarity, seeking solutions to the common challenges the humanity is facing right now. So influential figures from the government and of course business sectors, including Prime Minister Han Dok-su, who has led the whole bidding effort so far, and globally renowned uh, Korean figures such as former UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, will participate as speakers in the final presentation today. Now, out of the 182 member countries, only those who have fully paid their contributions are eligible to exercise their voting rights uh, in this voting. And assuming a maximum participation of 180 countries in the voting, if a country secures more than two-thirds, now that's around 120 votes in the first round, that uh, country or city will be promptly confirmed as the host for the 2030 Expo. Otherwise, an immediate second round voting will be conducted among the countries that secured the top two positions in the initial voting, and the country with the majority of votes will be selected as the host. So the total voting time combining both rounds uh, is expected to range from 10 to a maximum of 20 minutes. Now, if the voting proceeds as expected, the final results are anticipated to be announced as early as early as 4.30 p.m. local time, or that's uh, 12.30 a.m. on the 29th Korea time. Of course, considering there are a lot of um, different countries participating uh, in this uh, voting today, unexpected variables could potentially cause delays in the voting process. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of articles on the uh, the, the voting uh, up until yesterday, what uh, the South Korean government was hoping for. Uh, is that because uh, right now they're saying Riyadh is in the lead, right? That they, they, it's a close race. It's either going to be Riyadh or Busan, is what they're saying. And I think Busan did a very good job considering the fact that uh, they've only started. They actually started the campaigning process and a year later than some of the other country, uh, mm-hmm. some of the other mm-hmm. cities. And so it was really a a, a feverish uh, race down the wire here. And uh, what they're saying is is that if Saudi Arabia's Riyadh cannot get two-thirds voting, then the runoff will go between Riyadh and Busan. And with Rome out of the picture, a lot of the votes that went to Rome would then go to Busan, Mm -hmm. and Busan would have a chance. Now, things have changed a bit since I said this. I mentioned that yesterday. This is what the South Korean government is hoping for. Uh, Apparently, Italian Prime Minister uh, uh, Georgia Maloney is not present 
at the General Assembly. And so they're saying that it seems like Rome has kind of said, you know, well, we're not even going to win this. <laughs> and so if some of the voters who are going to be voting for Rome initially, is that vote going to Riyadh or is that going to mm-hmm. Busan is the big question. So we don't know. And so now it's 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 a it's going to be crazy. I, I don't know if people are I, there's going to be people up until 1230 midnight uh, past midnight to find out the results of this. But um, well, of course, uh, win or lose, uh, we will cover the issue on tomorrow's program. So do tune in for that. Uh, moving on here uh, today, uh, Tuesday, the National Assembly Special Committee on Personnel Hearings adopted the report on personnel hearings of Lee Jong-suk. Uh, he is a candidate for the president of the for the uh, Constitutional Court. Uh, Hedging, let's get the updates of this. Sure. Now, earlier in October, President Yoon Suk-yeol named Lee Jong-suk as the nominee for the president of the Constitutional Court of South Korea. And at the plenary session of the Special Committee on Personnel Hearings that took place this morning, the ruling and opposition parties adopted the report on candidate Lee Jong-suk to be the president of the Constitutional Court. And during the nominee's previous hearings, which was held on the 13th this month, the main opposition Democratic Party had focused its vetting on his past false resident registration, for which the candidate had issued an apology. The opposition has also claimed that President Yoon Suk-yeol nominated Lee in return for dismissing the DP-led impeachment motion against Interior Minister Lee Sang-min as the presiding justice. And the motion to appoint a constitutional court chief must be passed by a majority of lawmakers present and voting in the plenary session of the National Assembly. If the majority votes in favor of Lee, he will be taking the chief position at the Constitutional Court, which has been vacant since the retirement of former President Yoon Nam-seok on November 10th. In the meantime, the government will now fully cover compensation for unavoidable medical accidents that happened during childbirth. Uh, there's also discussions about raising the compensation limit from 3 million won at present. Uh, Yang, let's get the details of this. Sure. So the Korean Health Ministry announced today at the cabinet meeting that we have just mentioned that a partial amendment to the enforcement decree of the Act on Remedies for Injuries from Medical Malpractice and Mediation of Medical Disputes has passed. So the enforcement decree amendment was prepared to revise relevant regulations uh, following the upcoming amendment of the said Act on December 14th, which will shift the entire cost burden for such a compensation to be fully covered by the Korean government. Now, as a result, starting next year, the government will cover the entire cost for unavoidable childbirth medical accidents that happen, uh, relieving healthcare providers with delivery services from the obligation to financially contribute to the compensation program. Currently, the government is covering 70% of the compensation amount, with healthcare providers responsible for the remaining 30%. Now, Jung Kyung-sil, the health ministry's policy officer for health and medical affairs, expressed optimism on this, stating, quote, 
through strengthening national responsibility for unavoidable childbirth medical accidents, we hope to alleviate the decrease in the number of childbirth healthcare providers and the trend where medical school students avoid majoring in gyne- uh, gynecology and obstet- obstetrics. So, furthermore, the ministry is considering an increase in the limit for compensation for unavoidable medical accidents, currently set at 30 million won, addressing concerns about the practicality of the current compensation amount. Uh, the ministry is also reported to be contemplating a national compensation plan for unavoidable medical accidents involving children and adolescents. Let's uh, move on here, talk about North Korea. They've uh, went from being relatively quiet to now being at the center of attention right now. Uh, The United Nations Security Council held a meeting on non-proliferation issues at their UN headquarters in New York on Monday local time. This, of course, uh, to discuss their recent military spy satellite launch that took place uh, last Tuesday night. Hejang, tell us how the meeting went. Well, on Monday's UN Security Council session on North's recent space satellite rocket launch, the Security Council has been unable to come up with a concrete response with permanent members China and Russia advocating for North Korea against the West, including the United States. Khalid Kiari, Assistant Secretary General for the Middle East, Asia and the Pacific, said North Korea's rocket launch possesses poses a serious risk to international civil aviation and maritime traffic, which South Korea and the United States condemned as a violation of UN Security Council resolutions banning any launch using ballistic missile technology. He went on to add that while North Korea issued a pre-launch notification to the Japanese Coast Guard, it did not issue airspace or maritime safety notifications to the International Maritime Organization, the International Civil Aviation Organization, or the International Telecommunications Union, which is obviously a risk factor to civil aviation and maritime traffic. The UN official pointed out that the North's reconnaissance satellite development program is part of a five-year military plan that the regime unveiled in January 2021. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres also strongly reiterated his call on North Korea to fully comply with its international obligations and resume to the table for dialogue. Meanwhile, South Korean ambassador to the UN, Hwang Jung-guk, said that North Korea's provocative behavior is no longer a regional issue, but a global one, citing North Korea's supply of ammunition to Russia in connection with the war in Ukraine as an example. And at the end of the meeting, U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield and North Korean Ambassador Kim Sung made unplanned remarks, each arguing that their countries are acting defensively. The U.S. Ambassador stressed that the Security Council is tasked with maintaining international peace and security and that North Korea is undermining that very authority. She went on to point out that Russia and China, both permanent members of the Security Council, are not willing to condemn North Korea's violations of Security Council resolutions. Now, according to North Korean Ambassador Kim Sung, there are currently more than 5,000 satellites orbiting the Earth, defending the latest rocket launch as an exercise of North Korea's sovereign right to do so, 
accusing the UN Security Council of repeating its quote-unquote abnormal and absurd practices of making an issue of only the North satellite launches while making it clear that its spy satellite aims to monitor military activities of the U.S. and its allies. Again, we're going we're gonna to talk about this later on, but uh, we'll, we'll talk about why North Korea continuing to use that whole defensive capability as an argument doesn't make sense. Uh, but at the same time, North Korea, right, I mean, they think they have the rights. I mean, they're going, listen, everyone else has a military spy satellite orbiting the Earth and stuff. Why can't we have it? Well, the thing is, unfortunately, with all your provocations, you're currently banned from using ballistic missile technology under the UN Security Council resolutions. And so that's why you're not allowed to. And you're, again, you're breaching uh, Security Council resolutions once again. And uh, they're going to continue to talk about how it's for defensive purposes. We're going to go back and tell you, remember this now, again, Kim Sung saying that this is defensive in nature. This is for their defensive capabilities. We're going to go back on this in just a bit, so stick around. Uh, but also now, after declaring a complete scrapping of the September 19th inter-Korean military agreement, North Korea initiated the restoration process of strategic observation posts or guard posts. Uh, and in response... The South Korean military announcing its immediate readiness to implement corresponding measures. Ayane, let's get the details of this. Sure. So earlier, South Korean government declared a nullification of a provision from the September 19th military agreement on the 22nd in response to North Korea's launch of a military reconnaissance satellite. Now, that was followed by North Korea's declaring the termination of the military agreement on the 23rd, stating that they would immediately restore all military measures that had been suspended on land, at sea, and in the air. And then it was yesterday when South Korean military authorities revealed photos captured by military surveillance equipment showing North Korea deploying troops and equipment to reinstall observation posts or GPs within the DMZ that were dismantled in accordance with the agreement earlier. Now, according to a military official, it is presumed that North Korea is reconstructing their guard posts that have been demolished uh, in the past and apparently they have created white wooden structures and painted them with a modeled pattern. And the official further explained, quote, after destroying the GPs, both troops and equipment withdrew. But now there are scenes showing North Korean forces bringing back equipment with them with scenes of North Korean troops carrying recoilless rifles identified. So the official also added that, um, when observed with thermal imaging equipment at night, scenes of North Korean troops on guard duty were also identified. Apparently, all 11 North Korean GPs that were either destroyed or shut down are showing similar situations. And the defense ministry stated, quote, our military is closely monitoring North Korea's provocative actions. And based on the strengthened RK-US combined defense posture, we are fully prepared to respond promptly, forcefully, and resolutely to any provocations from North Korea. It was also confirmed this afternoon that North Korean soldiers stationed in the Joint Secu Security Area, or JSA, at Panmunjom were carrying pistols. According to multiple sources within the South Korean and the U.S. military, the North Korean guards have been carrying pistols since late last week. Uh, meanwhile, South Korea's JSA guards, on the other hand, are maintaining their unarmed status. 
So now in response to Pyongyang's restoration of the frontline guard posts, uh, we have Principal Deputy National Security Advisor Kim Tae-ho, who said that South Korea's military plans to do the same. Now, he talked to uh, KBS on Monday that uh, South Korea must not stay quiet when North Korea is armed and threatening South Korea from these guard posts. Uh, Hejong, let's get the details. Appearing on a KBS program, National Security Advisor Kim Tae-ho said on Monday that the South Korean military plans to restore guard posts along the inter-Korean border after North Korea began doing so on Monday. Security Advisor Kim said that South Korea simply cannot do nothing when the North is posing an armed threat in rebuilding guard posts within the DMZ, bringing in heavy firepower and conducting nighttime guard duty as seen in surveillance photos uh, released by Seoul. Regarding the South Korean military's vow to take corresponding measures in response to the North's latest move, Kim said Seoul plans to proceed immediately but calmly as Pyongyang is deliberately violating the entire agreement. The the security advisor also said that because North Korea has continuously breached the 2018 inter-Korean military agreement over the last five years, there is no need to hold an uh, to hold an additional cabinet meeting to suspend the effectiveness of other provisions within the deal. He also pointed out that North Korea's intention is to disrupt the security in South Korea so that South Korea will hesitate to take the next step. Meanwhile, the U.S. State Department has criticized North Korea's latest move, saying that they are actions that increase the risk of military tensions and miscalculations on the Korean peninsula. A State Department spokesperson stressed that the U.S. supports efforts to manage and reduce military tensions on the Korean peninsula and around the world through military coordination, transparency, and risk reduction measures, reaffirming that Washington's commitment to the defense of South Korea remains ironclad. Remember we talked about the military spy satellite being defensive in nature and uh, they're going to be using for their to strengthen their defensive capabilities this is what north korea said well uh, with the launch of its military reconnaissance satellite manigan one again launched last week uh, they've also captured images of major military facilities and government comp- uh, buildings in the united states this including the white house and the pentagon among others uh yane first off uh, tell us about these images that were shot Sure. So today, uh, North Korea's KCNA released a report where it said Kim Jong-un received a briefing on the operation preparations progress of North Korea's reconnaissance satellite from November 25th to 28th. Uh, and that uh, briefing was given by the North Korea's uh, National Aerospace Technology Administration office in Pyongyang. So apparently the report stated that Kim Jong-un received detailed information on the data captured by the satellite satellite, including footage of the Norfolk uh, Naval Base in Virginia, the U.S., and Newport News Shipyard, as well as airfield uh, in the United States. Now, that was taken at 11.35 p.m. uh, on the 27th Korea time, as well as images of the White House and the Pentagon at 11.36 p.m. on the same day. Now, additionally, it claimed that data captured from the area of the Norfolk uh, Naval Base and Newport News Shipyard 
start had revealed four U.S. nuclear-powered aircraft carriers and one British aircraft carrier as well. However, North Korea did not release satellite photos taken by the Manigyong-1 satellite. North Korea has consistently claimed that after the launch of the reconnaissance satellite on the night of the 21st, it captured images of major military bases in South Korea and the United States, including Guam and Hawaii, but none has been disclosed so far. Now, According to the report, uh, Kim expressed great satisfaction with the successful progress of the preparation for the operation of the reconnaissance satellite ahead of its official mission. Now, the report stated that detailed adjustments for the reconnaissance satellite are being conducted approximately one to two days ahead of schedule. Earlier, North Korea had announced that after completing a week to 10 days of uh, so-called detailed adjustment processes, Maligyong-1 would officially begin its reconnaissance mission on December 1st. So if North Korea is truly using the Maligyong-1 satellite in order to kind of boost their defense capabilities, right? right they're saying basically they're going to get these images of like these naval bases to make sure that there's no unusual movements going on. Like that's, that's what the U.S. does. That's what South Korea does as well. Always, there's always satellites above uh, the, the, what is it, uh, the, the naval ports, mm-hmm. uh, seaports of North Korea to see if there's any movements from like these submarines, for instance. And of course, with South Korea not having its own uh, domestic spy satellite just yet, it uses images that were given by U.S. Uh, think tanks. Um, but sure, capturing photos of a Norfolk uh, naval base, a Newport News shipyard, and an airfield, it does seem like a defensive, I guess, t- technique, I, I, whatever you may call it. But when you're taking photos of the White House and the Pentagon, <laughs> that's a threat. You're basically going, we can see you guys and we can attack this area. Like, that's what it is. It's, it, it has no defensive purposes whatsoever to shoot images of the White House and the Pentagon. But the only thing that's quite interesting, I find, is that they have yet to release the photos by that was shot by the, the satellite images. Because if you remember last year, when a drone, a spy drone, entered mm-hmm. South Korea and they started taking <laughs> pictures and stuff like that. It was that, very blurry. It was bad. <laughs> no one knew where it was. They're like, what'd you, what'd you guys shoot? The only reason they knew that it was like, Seoul is because like they saw the Han, Han River, River. And they were like, all right, maybe this is so. And a lot of experts are saying the current technology that North Korea has, it's highly unlikely that they have very, very good images and they don't want to show this to the public. But they're purposely, of course, psychologically, they're going to say, hey, we can even check out the White House. We could even check out the the, the Pentagon. Uh, but uh, yeah, cons- chances are they're, they're blurry images once again. Uh, in the meantime, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has reiterated his willingness to meet with uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un this to resolve the issue of the Japanese abductees, which unfortunately for decades have not been resolved yet. Hejong, let's get the latest on this. Right. For some brief background, the abductions of Japanese citizens by the North Korean government took place during a period of six years from 1977 to 1983. And although only 17 Japanese are officially recognized by the Japanese government as having been abducted, there may have been hundreds of others who were just average Japanese people kidnapped by North Korean agents as part of a broader espionage campaign out of Pyongyang. 
And so far, North Korea has officially uh, admitted to abducting 13 Japanese citizens. So Prime Minister Kushida expressed his willingness to hold an early summit with North Korea to resolve the issue on the abduction of Japanese citizens by North Korea. Prime Minister Kushida stressed that now is the time to boldly change the status quo and that it is important to take initiative to build a relationship between the two leaders, reiterating that he is willing to meet the North Korean leader without any preconditions. Now, previously, Japanese Prime Minister uh, Fumio Kishida had stated on several occasions that he was making high-level consultation efforts to realize the North Korea-Japanese summit. Japanese Chief Cabinet Secretary Matsuno also added that the Japanese government has been carrying out various activities through multiple <coughs> channels to resolve the issue of Japanese abductees. And in September, Japan's Asai Shimbun reported that the North Korean and Japanese governments had held two secret meetings in March and May this year. Now, in contrast to its resolute resolute response to North Korea's nuclear and missile programs, Japan is taking a rather conciliatory tone when it comes to resolving the issues of its abductees. Because in order for Japan to get what it wants, Japan also needs China to cooperate, which has significant influence on North Korea. But at the recent trilateral foreign ministers meeting between South Korea, China and Japan, which took place in Busan on Sunday, China remained rather passive, barely touching upon the North Korean nuclear issue. And Japanese media outlets pointed out that this meeting was actually a step back compared to the trilateral foreign ministerial meeting that took place between the three countries four years ago. In addition, as the three foreign ministers failed to reach a consensus on the timing of a trilateral summit, there are prospects that a summit within this year is uh, pretty unlikely to happen. Yeah, which is unfortunate because uh, not too long ago, they had said that maybe uh, the leaders were pushing for maybe a December trilateral summit. Mm -hmm. But again, there had been instances in the past where North Korea did agree to release some of the hostages, uh, not, not the hostages, the abductees, and uh, abductees, and they were released. Now, not all of them. And if you kind of compare the two situations, I mean, North Korea is like one of those, it's like treating a little child, right? You can't ask a child to do something unless you offer them something. Japan has nothing to mm -hmm. offer at this point. I mean, if anything, they're making it worse right now by making a lot of false uh, historic issues, uh, but also uh, conducting you know trilateral uh, three-way uh, military drills uh, in, in the, the oceans near South Korea and, and the Japan and things like that. And so North Korea is basically going, we, we have nothing, you guys have nothing right now mm -hmm. that we need. Uh, but of course, they're going to continue to push for some kind of dialogue. But as we've learned before, we've, we've learned from the, the previous Moon administration. We've even learned it during the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. You got to give something. And, and, the, um, <laughs> and, and the reason why that Hanoi summit did not happen is because Trump refused to give the sanctions relief. And that was the thing that kind of ended it. Does Japan have anything? Does, does Japan have the power to lift the sanctions? No, they don't. And it, it really is unfortunate because... All things aside, you know, the, the abducted Japanese are getting older and older, and uh, it, it's getting tougher for them to return home, unfortunately. Uh, let's go over to the Middle East this time. Israel and Hamas 
agreeing to a two-day extension of a temporary ceasefire on the fourth day of the period, uh, originally scheduled as the last day of the truce. Now, as a result, uh, following the release of 69 hostages by Hamas over the past four days, additional 20 individuals are set to be released as well. Condition for this release is Israel's agreement to free an additional 60 Palestinians. Another 3-4-1 deal we're looking at. Yain, let's get the latest on this. Of course. So it has been reported that the Qatari Foreign Ministry, which has been mediating the talks between Israel and Hamas, announced through its Twitter account that both sides have agreed to a two-day extension of the humanitarian ceasefire in the Gaza Strip. So Hamas has confirmed that the agreement remains under the same conditions as before. Earlier, Israel and Hamas had agreed to a four-day ceasefire, with Hamas having the option to extend the truce by one day each time they release an additional 10 hostages. As a result, the original time of true cessation is now adjusted to the 30th 7 a.m. from the 28th uh, 7 a.m. So during the additional two days of ceasefire, Hamas is expected to release 20 Israeli hostages, while Israel is set to free 60 Palestinian detainees. In response to this development, the Israeli Prime Minister's office stated that it has approved including 50, uh, 50 Palestinian women in the list of detainees to be released when Israeli hostages were re- are released by Hamas. A spokesperson from the Prime Minister's office mentioned that they received the list of hostages to be released from Hamas on the first day of the ceasefire extension. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres expressed regret that the extension alone is not sufficient to address the humanitarian crisis. While strongly hoping for the ceasefire extension to contribute to increasing humanitarian relief for the suffering Gaza residents, he also acknowledged that meeting all the demands of the Gaza population during this short given timeline would be impossible. Now, amidst the news of a temporary ceasefire extension, the United States' steps towards mediation are also accelerating. The United States has welcomed the extension and urged for more hostage releases and humanitarian support for the Gaza Strip. A U.S. State Department official reported that Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who arrived in Brussels for the NATO foreign minister's meeting the previous day, is scheduled to visit Israel and the West Bank later this week. It's getting interesting with this uh, negotiations because, number one, you have so far 69 hostages that were released in the, the first initial four days of the ceasefire, right? And then now uh, Hamas have agreed to two more days. Israel and Hamas agreed to two more days, which is going to result in 20. Combine that together, that's 89. Uh, there's about some 240 hostages that were taken by Hamas uh, during their uh, October 7th attacks. And so there's still... A good 160 or so mm-hmm. hostages that remain captive by Hamas. Now, there's a lot of pressure right now on the Israeli government because there's a lot of people saying that although, you know, yes, the U.S. and Qatar, they're mediating, you know, the negotiations and stuff like that. But there's a lot of pressure on Israel because apparently when uh, Israel conducted the air raid against the Al-Shifa hospital, right, in, in Gaza Strip, uh, there was a number of Israeli hostages that were killed in that. And so they're going, oh, no. And, and in Hamas, I mean, they're known to do this, right? They're, they're, they're sort of using human shield 
Uh, and now they're also kind of using the hostages as human shield. And there's a lot of pressure now on the Israeli government because the families of the uh, the uh, the hostages are basically going, you can't do this. You have to do something so that they all return. And the Hamas, knowing this, they're going to try to buy as much time as possible. And of course, Benjamin Netanyahu coming out earlier saying that once the ceasefire deal is done and over with, that their offensives mm-hmm. are going to go in full force. I think that was a mistake. Mm-hmm. That that was that that was a dangerous thing to say because now Hamas are going to try to extend this as long as possible and start strategizing once again because they still have some 160 hostages and the Israeli government is pressured to get every one of them released before they get killed. And these air raids are still happening right now. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what how pan, uh, things pan out. We'll keep a close tab on this. And of course, for our listeners out there, uh, just around midnight, past midnight, uh, we get the results of the uh, the World Expo 2030 hosted. We'll get all the information on that. But guys, thank you very much for coming in today. Stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, we'll see you guys again. Thank, thank you. you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6pm to 8pm, Korea time.